Hey, I know you've been welcomed already, but one more time, we want to say thanks for being here. It really is a great day to be here. We're finishing up today a summer break message series where we've been looking at all kinds of great topics about how to make this time that for many of us is an adjustment in our calendar, but how to make it about more than just spending time or more than just taking a vacation. All that's good, but how to make it have be a summer of impact, how to make it have impact on us and the people we love. And today, I'm going to take you to the bedrock of our faith, to the core of the core. We're going to drill down deep today. And the reason we're going to do it is, is I want to make sure that as you progress along your life with God, and if you're here today and you haven't begun a life of active participation with God, my hope is that you would begin one. But as you continue or grow towards that, that you make sure and I make sure that we are laser focused on what God is really doing in our lives, how he does it, and that we don't sidetrack, that we stay in the middle of the road and we don't sidetrack or fall off into the ditch on either side. And, and here's why this is important. Um, today, by the way, is a little bit less of me trying to share with you just some Bible ideas for you to know. It's really more about me helping, trying to help, understanding for myself what God is doing. Well, here's why. I, I come across believers all the time. I struggle myself with trying to stay centered in a word that has multiple levels of meaning, but a word that for the Bible writers was very, very clear. It's a word that we've used a lot around here, and we're going to delve one more time into it. The word is very simple, simple to understand. You probably have a working definition in your mind already. We've talked about it quite a bit this year in 2012. It's the word gospel. Uh, we use this word in so many varied ways, like a lot of other words, that it can, if we're not careful, lose its punch, lose its essence. I think, for instance, maybe many of you would agree with me, the word love has had a similar kind of, of experience in our language. It means everything. I mean, you see the young guy and the young girl, and they're in love. It's beautiful. It's awesome. You see the older couple that's been married for 50 years, and they would describe their relationship as being in love. Might look a little bit different than the young guy and the young girl. But yesterday, I drove in to get gas at the Speedway because it was the cheapest. And I, I pulled in and I went and got a, uh, well, a glass about this big, cost a dollar, of, of, of an iced coffee drink. And you know what? I loved it. And then, you know, I, I love everything. I mean, I, I talk all the time how I love my church. I love iced coffee drinks. I love my wife. I love my kids. The word love has been used in so many varied ways. It communicates a general idea, but sometimes it loses its punch. And so, for instance, even in the Bible days, the Apostle Paul takes an entire chapter to define what love really means from God's perspective. The word gospel has experienced a similar journey. We have gospel music, in this case, the word gospel is an adjective defining a particular kind of music. And so some people use the idea of gospel music to define all Christian music. Others mean this particular brand, often a choir-based, 
often African-American type of music. We talk about the gospel in churches like today, maybe being the good news. But what is the good news? This dynamic of words that originally began meaning something specific, but over time, losing their definition, losing their edges, losing the sharpness, isn't a reality that happens only in our day. It was happening in the days that the Bible was being written. As God, by the Holy Spirit, would move on men to write down their experiences or to write down their thoughts. I I doubt these men had any idea that 2,000 years later we would still be going back to their pages, to their writing, to discover God's word and to learn how to live life and to experience life as we do. I don't think they knew that. They were just writing it down. And then God, through the Holy Spirit and through providence, began to direct that these writings be preserved. They were held as special. Eventually, they were accumulated into a book, 26 of them. We call it our New Testament. They were compiled with the 39 books of the Old Testament. We call the whole thing the Bible. Back in Bible times, people were still wondering, what do you, how do you keep laser-focused? And what, what does that even matter? So this week, I must have had eight, nine conversations. And over the last six months, I bet it double, it, it's in the triple digits. I'm over 100 conversations with people. And somewhere in the middle of that conversation, it becomes clear that there's been a little sliding away from the absolute clarity of the gospel. And you know who, you know who suffers when we lose the edges, the definition, the, the corners of these important theological ideas, we do. It's like if I have a watered-down definition of love, maybe love is the emotion I feel towards my wife. It's an appropriate, but it's an incomplete definition of love. I, if I l- get an incomplete definition of love, and that's how I see our relationship, well, the first time my emotions take a dip, if you've been married, you know sometimes emotions take a dip and i don't feel that warmth that glow there, that spark isn't there because my emotions aren't you know riding where they need to be or where they could be I, if that's my entire definition of love then our relationship suffers we suffer as believers in jesus as people who have been blood bought people who put our faith in a resurrected jesus the tomb is still empty and we believe that and god secures our relationship with him but when we lose laser focus on gospel we suffer. It shows up like this. It shows up when somebody sits down with me and they say, I don't even know if I'm saved. The word saved means there came a moment where I put my faith and trust in Jesus. And I trusted him to forgive my sins. I said to him, Lord, I want you to lead my life. And people have been following Jesus for a month, two, ten years. They'll say, I don't even know if I'm saved. And then you begin to press down and they begin to describe why. For many of them, it's because some emotion isn't happening. They come to church, and it doesn't have quite the same punch in their life. They watch other people, and it seems like the people that they are hanging around who put their faith and trust in Jesus, like they did, are having a better quality of spiritual life than they are. So there's an emotional thing or a comparative thing. Often they'll say to me, it's because I struggle with the same sins over and over i mean when i came to jesus and i trusted him to forgive me of my sins i thought that this area of life that's been a perpetual challenge for me or has been a recurring challenge for me i thought that that what would happen is is over time i would be free from that and it's not happening i mean am i really saved do i really have a right relationship with god 
Sometimes it's because they've hung around other believers. And other believers talk about things, have more knowledge of them, use words, and seem to get fired up. And have other people seem to have a special connection to God that is elusive to them. And so they wonder, am I, am I even in with God? And as a pastor, I gotta tell you, this, this, this breaks my heart for those individuals. Because all those categories, my emotions, what I think's going on in other people's lives, behavior patterns I see in myself, how other people make me feel, none of that impacts the gospel at work in your life. It doesn't. See, when it comes to the gospel, this very special word in your Bible, used a bunch of times, Jesus talked about it. Good news. The Apostle Paul becomes the, like the patron saint of people who are gospel committed, gospel believers. It's such an important word that an entire book in your Bible, the book of Galatians, we, we don't even know of a city anymore called Galatia. It was a prominent city in Bible times. And there were multiple churches, groups of people gathering, worshiping Jesus, putting their faith and trust in him, and then doing the activities that follow once you do that. Paul writes a book. We call it a book. It was a letter. We've divided it later into six chapters so that you could find a place to read. And if I said it's in Galatians, you would go, oh, that entire book? I go, no, no, it's in the sixth division of Galatians. So it was divided up so we could find it and read it. He wrote this entire letter to all those churches to get clear one point. A point that was at the core of what they were doing. And God saw fit to make sure that this letter over time, written almost 2,000 years ago, was preserved for us. He did that because God loves us. Not a love defined simply by his emotion towards us. As we were singing in the song, oh, he loves us, how he loves us. You know, with, with, with very poetic words like if, if if this love of God, if this grace were an ocean, it would swallow us up. That's our experience. We're, we're overcome with the grace of God, with the love of God. He, for people who have experienced that, who are walking in that, Paul wrote this letter because the Holy Spirit directed him to, to make sure that we didn't lose focus. So that we could walk in a better confidence. So that the freedom that the gospel brings would be more graspable i know it's not a word attainable that we couldn't that we wouldn't only comprehend it have a basic understanding a, a general acknowledgement that it's true but so that we could apprehend it grab hold of walking in the freedom it's what jesus said one day to the crowds and maybe you can relate to this and he looked out at people and he said come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden. You ever get tired? Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you, you know the next line? You know it? Rest. What was the rest he was talking about? Did Jesus mean that when you come to me, I'm going to pull up the easy chair and you can just sit in it and relax? In one sense, absolutely. Absolutely, that's what he meant. You don't have to carry it anymore. Because of the gospel, you don't have to carry what you were carrying. You can lay it down. 
You don't have to, and here it gets to the important word. You don't have to work to maintain, you don't have to work to begin a relationship with God. A lot of us agree with that. We don't have to work. In fact, that's the very definition of grace. Grace is God comes and provides for us a vehicle by which we can connect with him. And the penalty of our sins is no longer held against us. Jesus took it all on himself on the cross. All the junk we've done, all the sin that has touched our lives, its impact on us for eternity is gone. It's covered. It's washed. Come to me. All you are burdened, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You don't have to work that dynamic anymore. You don't. God will work it for you. Martin Luther, powerful, powerful theologian. He said that because of the gospel, we participate in passive righteousness. Now listen, I'm going to do a little theology today. You'll have to excuse me. All right? You can hang with me if you want to. If you, if you don't, that's, that's okay. You're going to miss the beauty of this simple idea. Martin Luther said that because of the gospel, we experience passive righteousness. And passive righteousness is so powerful. It means that we're not actively earning right behavior. We're not actively earning right relationship with God. Because of what Jesus did, it is gifted to us. The implications of this is, is huge. Because you've heard it many times, because we preach it regularly from this stage, because the general idea of grace and the general idea of the Christian message is so pervasive in our culture, it's part and parcel of our history as a nation. Because that's true, it's lost sometimes its punch. It's lost its power. And there are two big ways that this shows up, and then we'll read our text. It shows up in two sideline tracks. One danger with the concept of gospel over time is that people feel like what begins with grace, I accept the forgiveness offered by God through the work of Jesus, who was alive, died, resurrected. I accept that into my life and I begin a relationship with Jesus. But that sounds too easy. And what begins with grace often turns into, now that I've got a relationship with God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I can to keep it. I'm going to take what was offered freely, and now I'm going to try to live up in such a way as if it's obvious that I deserve to be given grace to begin with. We feel the weight, and we feel the beauty of the gift. We understand its preciousness. And for many of us, we then start trying to earn that which was given to us so freely. We want to make behavior modifications. We want to rid our lives of sin. We're going to live up to expectation. In simple layman's terms, we're going to go to church. We're going to pray. We're going to read our Bibles. We're not going to smoke, dance, or chew, or date girls that do. That's just kind of how it, how, it, how it boils down. And all those things have their place. We'll talk about that in a second. But what began with freedom, what began as a gift, turns into, listen to me, turns into a burden. So Jesus, looking at the crowds when he was introducing the idea of gospel, he looks and he says, how many of you are tired of trying to carry the weight of being in a right relationship with God? 
Many of them didn't even realize they were doing it. They were so caught up in their religious activity, adding on more and more responsibility to keep themselves in a right relationship with God. He said, are you tired of that? Are you weary? Come to me and find rest for your souls. Then he says, take my yoke on you. Take my yoke. Lay down your burden, but pick up my burden. But let me describe the burden Jesus has. His words, take my yoke on you. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Carrying the load yourself, earning it is heavy. A lot of people fall into this trap. Here's the sad truth about many churches in America today. It's a sad truth for some of us in this room today. We believe deep down, really, maybe you haven't thought about it, so it's kind of an undercurrent. We believe deep down, really, that what's going on here is I go to church to keep my relationship with God. I read the Bible to keep my relationship with God. I pray to keep a relationship. I avoid sin to keep a relationship with God. And that list over times as we sit in seats and are encouraged to take very active, bold, behavioral steps, the list of what we need to do to keep a relationship with God grows and grows and grows and grows. And so people begin to work themselves into a frenzy. And they work and they work and they work. And at some point they wake up and realize, I'm spending a lot of energy, emotional and physical and mental energy, trying to keep this relationship with God. And many of them check out and decide it's not worth it. They take an honest assessment of themselves and they say, I'm not living up. I I don't know that I can do this. They get hurt and they realize that price is too high a, a price to pay for the benefit I was getting out of it. What's going on with all the people, with so many of the people who were beginning this relationship with God so powerfully and strongly, and then all of a sudden they, they burn out? Listen to me. This is like not a specific verse in your Bible, but people in the Bible struggle with this. The verses we're going to read are dealing with this. The challenge with this earning thing is it doesn't deliver what the gospel promises deliver to deliver. And one by one, people begin to discover it's not worth it. They get tired. They disengage. They began by putting their trust in Jesus, but now over time they began to put their trust in their abilities to live up to what they think Jesus is expecting from them. And in that subtle shift, They lose focus of the gospel. And what began as an easy yoke and a light burden becomes a heavy weight. These people lack joy. Joy is gone. I'm not saying happiness. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. Cousin, a a cousin term is joy. It's a much deeper reality that says, regardless of my circumstances, there is this sense in me That God is pleased with me. And he's pleased with me, not because, here it is, now we're going to get right to like, it's going to sound a little bit like psychobabble for just a minute, as if I've turned on like the spiritual Oprah thing. This is biblical. They begin to realize, I don't have this joy in me, this internal sense that God is pleased with me, not because I demonstrated how much I love him, and I lined my life up with the teachings of the Bible. That's not where the joy comes from. 
God is pleased with me because I've demonstrated a life of integrity and consistency. That is not why the gospel says we can have joy. That is not what the gospel says pleases God. This is going to sound too easy for you. And yet it is the truth. God is pleased with me. I can have joy in the pleasure God takes in me. Not because of anything I do. Nothing I do. God can take joy in me not because of anything I'm going to do. God doesn't even take joy in me in who he's making me to be. That is not the root of my joy. The root of my joy, resting in the fact that God is pleased with me, comes only because, only because of what Jesus Christ did on my behalf. You realize God loves you, but he takes pleasure in you. Not based on anything you can offer him. Only because Jesus took all the weight of everything broken in your life. Of every missing the mark in your life. He took it on himself and God said, simply because of what Jesus did in dying and my resurrecting of him, I take pleasure in you. When was the last time you had a profound sense that God was pleased with you? There's another danger in losing sight of the gospel. Some people want to earn it, and some people, on the other hand, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the biblical word. Licentious. We don't even use that word anymore. It, it, it's, it's the idea that, oh, if, if God doesn't care about my behavior, if I don't have to try to live up to it, then nothing I do matters. I can do whatever I want, and I'll just stamp grace on it. And when I stamp grace on it, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Paul writes the book of Galatians. Jesus talks about it. To combat these two gutter experiences and to try to get people to stay on the road of grace and the gospel. He doesn't want us to fall off into feeling like we have to earn what began in grace, which is reality for a lot of believers. It's why a lot of people get up and go to church. It's why a lot of people serve. It's why a lot of people are guilted into reading their Bible. It's why when I preach, here's what we should do. So many of you feel it, and you're so motivated, but then you can't get up and do anything about it. And he doesn't want people to go, oh, if grace is that beautiful, then I'll just do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter. I'm covered, baby. Grace is awesome. Paul says both of these are distractions from the gospel. So now, let's turn our attention to Galatians chapter 1. And let me show you how the Apostle Paul begins to wrestle with this thing 2,000 years ago that still is a battle in the hearts and minds of believers today. Galatians chapter 1, here's what it says. Paul, that's the guy who wrote it, back in the day you began your letters by telling who was writing. Not a bad idea. We now get you know, a return address on our envelopes, and so we know who wrote the letter. Savvy business companies trying to get you to spend money on them and marketing a lot of times they won't put a very clear who the letter's from and they make the letter look like it's from the united states government and old people open it and then they're like they send them their you know their information their social security cards and because if you don't know who it's from right so in the old days they used to start by telling who the letter's from paul who is an apostle he's an apostle sent not from men nor by a man but by jesus christ and god the father who raised jesus from the dead and he's Writing to all the brothers, in, or writing from all the brothers and sisters that are traveling with him. 
And then he tells us who it's written to. The church at Galatia, a city. The churches at Galatia, all the groupings of the church meeting in that city. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just establishing his credentials. Letting know, people know his heart towards them. Have you ever discovered that when people trust your heart, you can have difficult conversations? You know, if, I have a, if my wife and I are in a good zone, and she has something she wants to tell me that maybe I'm a little tender to, or in the past I haven't responded well to it, once, she, once it's clear to me what her heart is towards me, she can almost tell me anything, and I'm receptive. Paul's wanting people to know his heart here. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's his beginning. And then he starts in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Which is really no gospel at all. Let's pause here. When you lose sight of this and you begin to go down this trail. Or you go down this trail. Paul says, it's not like you have a perverted gospel. Which is somewhat effective in your life. You're almost at the truth. He says, when you go down this road, you're not even on the gospel road at all. When we carry the weight of maintaining a relationship with God. We're not walking on the gospel road. When we act as if because grace is so powerful, it doesn't matter what we do. And we never feel the call of God's spirit to our lives to walk according to the law that the grace giver gave us. We're not walking in the gospel at all. And what is at stake is our joy. What is at stake is our freedom. What is at stake is the power of our testimony, our witness to the grace of God. We have to get gospel right, because when you don't get gospel right, Christians walking in and among non-Christians don't have that compelling, magnetic force at work in them that makes some people stop and go, I wonder why they seem so peaceful, joyful. Sometimes they simply say it as happy. It's why you've seen this. Some people go to funerals and the death that is being honored at that funeral is terrible and tragic and they feel the weight of it and you see them cry. And yet when you talk to them, there is this undercurrent of joy in the middle of that pain because somehow they've tapped into something else. They know where that person is. They know it's not the last time they're going to see them. It's why when they lose their jobs or their kids go through stuff, of course they feel it. But there's something else there. These are the people that walk not in shame. They don't walk in guilt. Oh, listen, they're guilty. There are things in their lives that are shameful. They don't walk in that. Something's covering it. This is, my, this is my heart for everybody at Four Corners. 
that the grace of God would penetrate every portion of your life. That you would take what is the simple gospel message, that you don't begin and you don't keep a relationship with God based on what you do. That your heavenly Father is pleased with you because of Jesus, not because of you. And God's not pleased with you because of who you're becoming or who you might be one day. He doesn't love your potential. He loves you. And that you would walk in that. And that would produce in you what the Bible says, an overflowing well. Your cup would run over and it would splash onto other people. How many believers in this room, how many believers do you know? They get the theology. They, they say what I'm saying, but it doesn't penetrate into their lives and they walk around in, in shame. And so what happens, we'll just pick a very common topic at work in our world. So what happens every time I talk about pornography with men and ladies too. And as I do, they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on their lives and they say, Oh, God, thank you for being gracious and calling out to me again. I commit once again, God, that I'm going to be free of this. I claim your power at work in my life. God, I give you that sin, and I'm going to walk in freedom. Many of them will go a day, a month, a year, and then they fall again. And they they know the importance of that because they don't want to be over here. But what it does in them is it doesn't draw them back to grace and gospel. That failure doesn't cause them to stand up in power and go, the very God who originally forgave me, the God who has forgiven me a thousand times, that is the very God who will welcome me with open arms when I come humbly to him. That's not what they do. The enemy comes alongside them. The Bible calls him Satan. In Hebrew, Satan. And it means accuser. And he comes up to them and he says, you're a failure. After God's been so good to you, how could you do this to him? If people found out, and they walk around in shame, heavy laden, burdened, not an appropriate conviction, which is the antidote to this, but a guilt and a shame that is oppressive, a heavy burden. Many of them will experience that overnight, and they'll check out. They're done. They can't do it. You'll see this with men. You know what happens when men get embarrassed? You know what we do? Listen, ladies, this will cure a lot of communication issues. When men are embarrassed or we don't feel emboldened in power, we just step back. We won't engage. We're not going to risk failure. We'd rather risk nothing than to risk failure. We're not going to risk engaging and not living up. We'll pull back. This is why men drop out of church sometimes. There's this shame and guilt cycle that tells something about their grasp of gospel. So that when they fail, when they don't live up, rather than coming in boldness and saying, Dear Jesus, you gave your life for all my past sin, but not just my past sin, for my current sin, for my future sin. The very path that began a relationship with you is well lit so that any time I stray, I can run back in boldness to the throne of God, humbly cast myself at your feet, knowing that you'll accept me with open arms. They don't do that carry on shame and guilt and then they pull back and they feel like a failure they feel like they've let god down depending on how you're wired you've let other people down you let your spouse down and it debilitates your joy it keeps you from pressing into your purpose 
Your joy gets worked out as you live in the divine purpose God called you to. As you find your role in the kingdom and you realize I'm an imperfect vessel. I am at the best modeling clay. And God took me as a potter and he began to mold and shape me with all my imperfections. And he decided that even me, with my imperfections, he would use me to boldly proclaim freedom in Christ. And that understanding that you're not perfect, but God will use you anyway, produces this unbelievable joy in you, but not if you back off. Not if guilt and shame are your way. You'll back off, and you rob yourself of the freedom that comes not from being perfect, not from being near perfect, but the freedom that comes from being an imperfect vessel used for honor. That's why some men, I think, don't engage parenting on the highest level of making an investment in the development of their kids. They engage it on a very simple level of simply providing for their kids and family. Because they know they're imperfect. They know they have integrity issues. They know there's hidden sin. Or and so they don't even engage. And they rob themselves. So Paul says, here's the deal. You can't go to any other gospel. Instead, you have to hang central to Christ. Verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul or his messengers, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, any other gospel than the one preached to you, the one we preached to you, let that person be under a curse. People who come and say anything other than the simple gospel, and they claim that what they're doing is bringing a message, let that person be cursed, even if an angel were to do it. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what was accepted, what you began with, what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And he's going to go on for six chapters, and he's going to describe this dynamic where people try to pull you over here into earning what was begun in freedom or combating the other track, which is just an inversion of the same coin. Well, if the gospel is so powerful, it nothing matters. I can live however I want. No, the gospel brings freedom. And that freedom is declared over you. The biblical word for this is justify. God justifies you. He looks at you and says, oh, you did it. You're guilty. But I'm going to choose to declare, not change history. I'm going to declare at you as if that doesn't matter. I'm going to declare it as if you didn't do it. Oh, it happened. This is what justification is. When you read your Bible, you'll come across words like the justification of Christ. He looks at us and says, of course you're guilty. Of course you're imperfect. Of course you're continually failing. But I justify you. I cover it. And that justification is not just at the beginning of a relationship with God. It's all the way through. Just don't fall into the trap, he says. And you're gonna, if you were to read this book, you'll discover. Don't fall into the trap then of adding on religious duty after religious duty and fail to acknowledge that that duty you live doesn't secure, doesn't earn, doesn't place you any closer to God. He already has a right relationship with you. And don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, if it's all that way, then it doesn't matter what I do. 
Instead, let's turn the coin. Instead of saying, well, if it's all free, and if it's all grace, then what do I need to do? Say this. God, because of your great gift to me, how can I do anything other than try to live the life you've called me to? I mean, if the life you've called me to begins by you covering everything and justifying me, and I experience passive righteousness that I don't earn. It's not active righteousness, but I experience passive righteousness. Then God, if I can trust you on that level, can I with joy, can I with a sense of purpose and urgency and excitement, then embrace not only the gift, but the gift giver? Can I embrace not only the gift and the gift giver, can I embrace all the things that flow from the gift giver? All the things he looks at me and says, because I love you, here's a gift for you. It's called grace. Because I love you, here's another gift for you. It's called the law. And if you walk by the law, it won't secure your relationship with me. In fact, the only thing the law is going to do for you is show you where you fail. But if you live up to the law, you let me draw you to that standard, you're going to experience freedom like you've never known. Now here's an interesting twist of words you'll find in Galatians. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom is the goal. And then in the next breath he says, so make yourself then a slave to Christ. Whoa. How do you do that? What is that? Oh, you don't cash in your freedom. But in your freedom you choose then to give your life wholly over to the God who saved you. So that in your perfection, it is his grace that secures you. In your imperfection, it is his grace that secures you. And in that dynamic, there is freedom and joy. The enemy has been too successful in convincing too many of us that God is displeased with you. You've already done too much. Some of you, because of the weight of that, have already decided, I'm going to live as if nothing of it matters anyway because I can't live up to it. And some of you, you're, like, you're working so hard to earn what's already being freely offered to you. And God says in the middle of that, there's a very simple message of the gospel. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Take, take me on you. Take, take my yoke, my burden on you. The burden that says, this is a free gift from God. Friends, two-thirds of your New Testament is dealing with this issue right here. And it's an issue very much alive in churches. That's why people begin to serve, and then they serve a little more, and then they serve a little more, and they serve a little more. And eventually they're burnt out, because somewhere along the, li- the way, they lost focus of this. Of course, we don't talk about that. We say they were overused. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe there was this internal compulsion in them to keep going, keep going, keep going, because deep down they thought they had to live up to some expectation God had of them. Not the simple, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and says, you might want to adjust this, and they respond. Not the simple, there's a message about an issue of sin, and they respond in grace. And then they run in freedom back to the God who they know loves them. More the picture of the shamed kid who's like, I did it, I'm sorry. We have this false idea of humility that we have to walk in shame and guilt as opposed to the humility that says, God, let's just acknowledge it. I can't do this. Thank you for telling me that when I realize, every time I realize I can't do this, I didn't do this, I can come boldly to your throne knowing you love me. 
And so there's a sustainable pattern of the God who isn't looking at you through the lenses of shame and guilt. Churches are scared of this message. I'm terrified of this message. Because some of you will hear, Woo, I don't have to do anything. Thank you, Jesus. Woo. You know what happens when churches, when like a bunch of people are just like, I don't have to do anything. Somebody else will, mm, God did it all. Well, you know, volunteers disappear. People don't give. They don't. So pastors, without even knowing it, churches sometimes, they're so committed to the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, they kind of, without admitting it, now this is the undercurrent, right? This is like if you're in a back room with pastors talking, like if, a, if you were to like hear the hearts, not just the words, but we kind of like it when people are over here. These people tithe. Because they know they're going to go to hell if they don't. You know, they don't want God being unhappy. And so, you know, we don't preach the freedom. One of the most conservative pastors in America today is named Chuck Swindoll. You may have heard of this guy. He's full of wisdom. He said, if your churches aren't preaching grace to such a degree that some people get uncomfortable believing that there are no standards, you're not preaching grace enough. This is an old-timer who holds the standard. He's like old-time religion. And he's dead on right. This is the message of Paul. So then what becomes the motivation? It's no longer guilt and shame. It's now joyful. It's out of the overflow of what's been giving, given to me. I live in response, a response of gratitude. I'm grateful. And out of a sense of being grateful and being blessed, I return back to God. My Stuff, yeah. My heart, yeah, yeah. My emotions. All of me and all that I have. So that when I sin, it bothers me. Not because I feel like, oh, I've blown the entire deal. And for men, then I back away. Don't engage. No, I haven't blown the entire deal. That very thing calls me back to center. So I give, I tithe, I, I serve, I Invest in people because this is the greatest thing the world has ever heard. The political system, friends, no matter who you vote for, isn't going to deal with the human heart. Oh, it's important. Please vote. If you don't know who to vote for, email me. I'll tell you who. It matters. But no president can change a human heart. Nobody can deal with the sin sickness. The best we can do is compel people to do some nice things by putting penalties or taxes on them or with an army at gunpoint. That's the best we'll ever be able to do through government. But the gospel will take people who are stingy, who have experienced what God has given them and they're greedy and they want more than and all of a sudden, they find themselves writing checks. They're serving. They're building houses for the poor. They're helping their neighbors. There's a generosity welling up in them because the heart has been changed by the power of the gospel. And husbands and wives who have deep-seated bitterness, and he knows what she did, and it was bad, look at each other and they say, I forgive you. Let's move on. Let's do this together. Where does that come from? It comes from having a sense of gratitude for what you were forgiven from. And because you've been forgiven so much, then it naturally flows. If I've been forgiven so much and I'm very aware of what I've been forgiven, how can I not do anything other than forgive? That's not guilt. 
It's not compulsion. It's freedom to become a slave to the way of God. Depending on your wiring, you gravitate towards the freedom. It's freedom for freedom for freedom for freedom. So it doesn't matter. Or it's slavery, slavery, slavery. Let's do it. Live up to it. Come on, guys. One more time. Let's give the old heave-ho. Pull yourself up. Let's do it again. And in the middle of that's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament saying, look, your relationship with God isn't based on any of that. So that when we do church right, you know who gets praised? Jesus. Not a pastor. It's Jesus. Because it was him that did it all. And when you do something powerful in the life of a person, and they come up to you and they say, thank you for making this investment in me. You know who they're really thinking? Jesus. And it makes all the difference. There is great freedom in not having to carry around the weight of your own development. And there's great freedom in participating with the God who loves you so much that he wants to develop and grow you. And though this sounds complicated, and there are troubles on both sides, you can engage this topic and begin to discover freedom. How do you know if you need to hear this? If you walk in shame, any shame, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you need to return to the basic gospel. It's life. It's freedom. If you are living as if your sin doesn't matter, and you've either because you've tried so much and couldn't do it, or you're just kind of enjoying the freedom you're, freedom you're walking in right now, you need to return to the gospel and find a God who's loving and forgiving. And he loves you like a parent who says not to their kids, I love you, do whatever you want. A parent says, I love you. Now listen, don't play in the street. And if you play in the street, we're going ma- to we're, we're, we're put some behavior modifications in place because you don't understand the danger there. So let, let me help you. Let me develop you and grow you. Friends, as we build our church, this is what it's about. Now in that, you're going to experience community. In that, you're going to like sweat for God and you're going to lay your head down at night and go, oh Lord, I, I, I thank you for the joy of being able to do something to be a part of your kingdom. You're going to experience friendship and meaningful conversation. Some of you are going to experience the freedom from sin and the consequences of your sin, they always come into your life. You're going to experience that. But that's really, ultimately, the effect, the fruit of the purpose of the church. To declare Jesus Christ and his message of forgiveness and love and grace unending to people who will never, ever earn it. And to look people in the eye and say, of course you're not perfect. Why are you waiting to get perfect before you join the mission of Jesus? Why are you waiting to get perfect before you re-engage? Why are you waiting to get all clean? God didn't come to you and say, get clean and I'll forgive you. And he didn't come to you and say, get clean and I'll use you. No, the joy comes from knowing I'm an imperfect vessel. I'm a sinner, and yet he uses me to be a part of proclaiming this powerful message. When I remember that, you know what happens at the end of a hard day for me? I put my head down on my pillow, and I go to sleep with a smile. 
And when I forget that, you know what happens to me at the end of a hard day? I lay awake at night wondering how I, and I go one of two directions, how I can try harder to not disappoint people. How I can try harder not to disappoint God. What was the one mistake I made that, and it's not the healthy, self-evaluative, Holy Spirit, guide me, God, give me your wisdom. It's the unhealthy enemy of our soul coming along saying, see, you're nothing but a screw-up. How about you? Where does a lack of clarity of the gospel show up in your life? Are, are you over here? Doing your best to live life as if God's standards don't matter? Or are you over here carrying all the weight? Why don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a few steps together as a congregation. You know why we have to regularly come back to the core? Because there are people who don't know this yet. So next step A deals with that directly. It says, I want to accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord for the first time. Man, that sounds great. It is. It sounds too good to be true. Oh, it's too good. But it's true. <laughs> it is. It's why your Bible exists. It's why churches exist to proclaim this message. If you want to accept that and begin a relationship with Jesus for the very first time, go ahead and check that box. Now, some of you are going to be compelled to check the box that you've already put your faith in Jesus because you don't understand that once you've done it, you can go back to him and it's not redoing it again. You're not doing it again for the first time. No, you're setting up a pattern of going to the God who loves you. So this is for first time. Look, if you've never done this, there's never been a moment where you said, oh God, I think I'm beginning to understand and I want that. This is for you. We'll deal with you in just a second who have already committed. All right, next step B. If you want to get baptized, last week there were three people that got baptized said, oh my goodness, I'm going to go public with this faith. Oh, it's wonderful. I just want the world to know. And if there's anything in my testimony you can look at and say, God, they're getting baptized? Woo, this church is, you know, they'll take anybody. Of course we will. If you want to go public with your faith, check that box and we'll be in touch with you. Not next step B. Let's deal with our hearts for a second. Even though I'm a Christian, I have recurring feelings of guilt or shame. And I want to be free. I, I was dealing with the men, but ladies too. Men, ladies, you find yourself pulling back because you know you don't measure up? The enemy won right there. He won. Don't do it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself. That's what the Bible if that's you, why don't you just check it, acknowledge it, and let us pray for you. Here's how I'm going to pray, that God would break the stronghold of the enemy's lies in your life. You'd experience freedom. This is for people who grew up in church. This is for people who want to do right. And the enemy has come in at night and he's sown weeds in your life that are sprouting up and causing feelings of guilt and shame. And you've been declared not guilty. Next step, D. Even though I'm a Christian, I have recurring patterns of sin in my life, and I want to be free. You, it's like you've done everything you can to not face the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You turned out the whisper of God, the loud shout of God often, and says, look, you keep going down this path. I love you. It's going to bring pain. You keep flirting on this issue. It's going to bring pain. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to rob you of moral authority in the life of your kids. Don't do it. Don't. And, and you've just turned your ear against that. You know you're walking in sin. Listen, let's declare that God is powerful and he defeats the power of sin in our life. If that's you, check the box. And the next step, E, I want to commission all of you to go this week and read the six chapters of Galatians this week. A lot of you will check this box. Not all of you will do it. 
I can't make you. We'll send you a gentle reminder and a link. You can read it online, just like I did off my phone today. It'll take about 20 minutes investment of your time. And you'll hear Paul work all through this issue with people who were struggling with what it meant to follow the rules or live by grace or not follow the rules at all. He's going he's gonna to wrestle with it. You should wrestle with it. We all should wrestle with it. Why don't you check the box and then actually read a 15-minute investment in your development as a believer. Find out a little bit more about this gospel that holds it all together. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus. Oh, God. Um, Lord, you, you, messed, you messed me up this week. God, I, I was gripped personally, and I was gripped as I sat with, over the last few months, dozens of people who are trying to come to terms with what it means to walk in faith, to be a Christian, to give their lives to you. Lord, our enemy has been so savvy to play with us on both sides of the equation. And yet, God, your word is clear and true. It makes us uncomfortable because it's so simple. It doesn't seem fair. And yet, God, you're the God who sets the rules. So today, Lord, I ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would be in this place, tearing down strongholds. And that, God, you would rise up a standard of truth centered on Jesus Christ and the message he brought. Lord, make this church a gospel church where, of course, we do great things and our volunteers are spectacular as they give their efforts and their sweat and their money towards the work you called us to. But God, don't ever let us fall into the gutter and believe that somehow we're earning what you gave so freely. And God, make this church a gospel church so that when people come and they're living their lives as if their sin doesn't matter, that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is so thick that they hear not just the wrongness of their actions or their hearts or their motivations, but they hear the loving Father call them to a better way, a way that brings life and freedom. Lord, in a moment as we stand to worship you as imperfect, broken sinners, saved by grace, receive our praise, not because we've earned it, but because you've offered it. Receive our praise, our gratitude, as children who understand that our God loves us. We pray it in your name, the strong name of Jesus. Amen.